Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Got a little different flavor this afternoon. It's just Tom and I. So, Tom, what's up? Uh, you tell me. This is like recording the however many episode in the new setup, and it's not the final setup. So, yeah. It's different. We're feeling out the space and or lack of. Yeah, looking at, a, looking at the room from the opposite angle. It's totally, now you actually have some furnishings instead of a table that looked like it was for little kids. Well, the, the particle board desk and credenza, they're basically brand new, even though they were probably like 2004 models, yeah. but had never been used for anything. But uh, we still have a gone. phone in here. And for our listeners... It's not a rotary phone, but it's like the first-generation phone with a tin keypad. That's right. Got to be. Got to be. For people that have never seen one of those. It has a ringer in it most. Yeah, it's probably definitely loud. <laughs> Why would that phone even be in here? So this building was built in 2004. Nobody had a phone like that in 2004. I mean, it opened in 2005, so this would have been constructed probably sometime in 2004. Nobody had a phone like that. Um, there are still some of those floating around in offices, though. I know, but if you built a brand new building in 2004 or 5, why would a phone like that be in this, which was originally an office? Yeah. Makes no sense. No. That's straight-up analog phone. Well, but they still add some places on this experiment station for digital phone. There's still some offices that are wired analog Tom had the idea, and I think it's a good idea, that we wanted to talk a little bit this afternoon on burn down. Stuff's kind of gone in the ditch over the past few weeks. We really got out of the gate strong, and then we had that dry period in February, and I don't know how many weeks in a row now it's rained here, Tom, significantly, since it got dry enough to do any field work on the station. But I mean, it's got to be, we're got to be going on five weeks or so now. Possibly six. I'd have to go back and look. Say something like that. And with additional rain forecast. We mentioned the renovated podcast studio. Tom and I had a little issue yesterday with the laptop. And we ended up in Madison at the Apple store. And while they were working on the computer, we had an hour or so to kill. So we went to Barnes & Noble. So, Tom, what was the oddest book that you saw in Barnes & Noble yesterday? That's my question for you. Oh, boy. Do you really want me to tell you what well, I thought it was? Because that could get us in. I think you know how to answer the question. <clears throat> we'll just do that because I think it's spur of the moment. So what was the oddest book? I think was basically a survivalist guide to climate change. And the book walked through everything. Because I took some time to flip through it. I was fascinated <laughs> by it. And that's as why, I told... That's why I asked the question because you spent some time over there. I took I took a picture and sent it to my wife and said, you know, choose a book for me. And she picked the one that was completely the other side of the other three. Uh, but the survivalist guide walked through everything. How you set up your insurance. How you basically prepare your house. What you're going to need for the coming Armageddon of climate change. And I won't go any further than that statement. That was the oddest book that I ran across. Uh, That's the reason I ask. You spent a lot of time in that little nature section over there yesterday. Okay. Clearly, being as we've discussed the weather and what's happened and everybody probably, I know your phone's been 
blowing up this morning as we've been doing some things together. Burn down and what's happened as a result of burn down and or the period of time that has lapsed since burn down. And there were some topics that I jotted down to talk about. What do we do about big ryegrass? Because driving up and down the road right now, there's plenty of fields that are showing some big ryegrass. Yeah. And it looks very different than it did a few weeks ago when we had Daniel on and talked about burn down. Cause we started to get in some more moderate temperatures. It hadn't really been warm yet, but we've had strings of days in the seventies and definitely more moderate low temperatures and so the good start that we had going all the way back to the fall we started to see some of that break and get new emergence of ryegrass get plants that weren't completely controlled with a post treatment or broke through that residual treatment in the fall but december january when that plant's just kind of sitting before it starts to really grow vertically it's not all that noticeable and now you've got these big gnarly clumps that you see driving down the road and 50 clumps out across the field can start to look pretty bad in march whereas in january you don't notice it because it's just tillering out down close to the the, the soil surface there's a, a variety of reasons why it's there i mean i mentioned breaking through the residual it either has done that the field was never treated or has not been treated yet with burn down for various different reasons. It survived the post-emergence treatment, whether January, February, and then there's the case of new emerging ryegrass. There's always some emergence in the spring, a lot of variation among the populations with that. And we've spent some time and effort looking into this, this stuff over the years as a rule, if you put all the populations in the delta together, I'm of the opinion that we don't get a big spring flush of ryegrass relative to some other areas that I've worked in back down the line. But there are certainly we have populations that we get a significant flush in the spring. So like I mentioned to you before we started, Tom, just as soon as I try to make some type of collected statement, I'm a liar because there are exceptions to every collective statement I can make. Well, an environment wreaks havoc because, you know, as well as I do, the temperature that has changed between January and now, and, and even given that warm December, how that impacted plants that emerged after that's pretty, pretty difficult. To- the warm temperature in December had a big influence on what we're dealing with now, and not just with ryegrass, with everything. And... I don't know exactly how you quantify what that effect was, but I'll give you an example. We've had years and probably go back and it would be a pretty big hurricane year and not the fact that it was hurricanes, but the fact that, say, we would have soil moisture in August and possibly continued string of days with cloudy weather that would moderate the temperature. So ryegrass generally starts to emerge when you have 7 to 10 days with temperatures below 90 and, of course, moisture in the profile for germination. So we can have years where we meet those criteria pretty early. I remember Tom Eubank one year found some ryegrass up out around his house, and it was before the 1st of August. Now, granted, it was under shaded area, but it was still ryegrass emerged in the seedling stage 
at a unusual time of year. But we've certainly had some years where we've seen some up in August and then early September. But then there's been other years that where the fall has been really dry and we can get all the way up maybe to close to the first of November or after before we have a lot having come up because maybe the temperature was right, but the moisture requirement wasn't there. And so then that moderate period in December where usually the emergence would pretty much cease about the middle of December, maybe it continued. And, and I don't know what the bottom side of the temperature threshold is for ryegrass emergence. You know, if it's continually highs in the 40s and lows in the 30s or 50s and 30s, I don't know what the bottom side where ryegrass ceases to germinate. So, but I think that period in January definitely affected what we're dealing with now. And it affected the hen bit too. And I know that hen bit's something else that we want to talk about, but I guess let's wrap up on ryegrass or anything else that you would like to talk about on ryegrass. What kind of decisions does somebody need to make now for those situations where they do have some gnarly ryegrass throughout the field? So there's still a lot of clethodim going out and we can debate the effectiveness of that treatment this time of year. I think when Daniel was on, we talked about some of the, the what the labels say as far as size and, and things like that. But most of the ryegrass we have now is too big for clethodim. But it's a application of utility is maybe a way to say that. I mean it's it's what we it's what we have and it's what we can get out effectively. So there's not no value to it, but the expectation definitely needs to be tempered. We're not going to get 90% control with a single application of clethodium on the size plants that we have out there now. In a perfect world, cost aside, and I know if this year and no other, cost is definitely not aside, but if we're just talking about weed control, then at this point in the season, two applications of a high rate of paraquat is the preferred treatment. Again, it's 2022, and cost and availability is absolutely one of the factors that we have to account for. And unfortunately, the stories are that the volume of paraquat to supply the demand is just not there. What about spring tillage? Any impact or benefit from that? It's possible. It's such a big plant. It has such a big root system that you basically, you got to till it to death. Ideally, if you were going to attack ryegrass with tillage this time of year, you'd need to disc it a couple of times, and then you really need to drag some type of little scratcher, whether the little S-tine field cultivators that we have or some other type of harrow or light field cultivator to knock as much of the dirt off of those root balls as possible and then hope it doesn't rain for a few days until that plant dries out the sun can dry it out on the soil surface because if you get it tilled up like that and a bunch of the dirt knocked off the roots and you get a big rain it's just going to root back down and so then if you accomplish that you got it dissed up you got dirt knocked off the roots and it gets dry enough to kill that plant well it's too dry to do anything then you're not going to drop and plant corn, or if it's a little later, plant soybeans. It's, that's not realistic. So I've, I've never been a big fan of trying to disc it up or till it up in the spring because it requires, one, multiple passes, and two, there's, you just plow all the moisture out of the profile, and that really doesn't fit what we 
like to do. But then, like I said, with the exceptions, there's always exceptions. Talked to a guy this morning, had a field, had a significant amount of ryegrass in it. His intentions were to till it, and he was trying to decide whether he was going to put paraquat or something else on it. If you've got a fully turf field and it's got ryegrass and henbit and poa and and all the other laundry list of winter weeds you really need to spray something on it and try to desiccate some of that so you can get it turned in good so he was making a decision on what he was going to spray on it before he started disking it so that's a exception right there where a guy had a significant amount of ryegrass and his choice was to till it but on the fields that we prepare in the fall, in the delta, our beds are ready. Anything finer than a coarse sand where most often you have some bed reconditioning is going to have to go on in the spring. If we're intending on stale seed bedding it, then, then tillage in the spring is just not the way to go with it, in my opinion. And I think the decision is going to have to be made on a field-by-field basis. Yeah. which And that's where you got to pick up the phone sometimes and have that conversation because I don't think that each field is created equal when it comes to how much ryegrass is present. I mean, and you and I drove all the way to Madison yesterday and there were certainly some, some different situations there whereby I think somebody would need to make and address a different scenario for each situation. And we've mentioned before on burn down, making a recommendation and that recommendation goes over the whole farm. Do you got several hundreds to thousands of acres that may be getting treated the exact same way. And maybe they do get treated the exact same way, but maybe not all. Maybe that the, the airplane gets stretched out and that same treatment goes out over a, a period of a month. And so, you know, different environment. Say he has to make four applications, four different days to get all the acres covered. We got four completely different days, so four completely different environments, four completely different growth stages by that point too. And so I've had some conversations in the past week or so where the the comment is, well, you know, these two fields got treated the same and I've still got some ryegrass. It died everywhere except right here. What's different? And it may not be that they got they did get the same treatment, but it may be that they didn't get sprayed two different days. Maybe they did get sprayed the same day, and there's still some that it didn't die. So, I mean, in worst-case scenario is that part of that population is resistant to whatever treatment was sprayed on it. Chances are that's not the case. Chances are something else occurred, and it's probably something else that we're never going to know or couldn't identify. Possibilities you just got two different populations in one field. We see that in our field. They respond differently to a frost even. I quizzed my guys, had a lot of grass that when we had the really cold weather in January, had some ryegrass in those plots that was green as a gourd. And then others that took the frost pretty hard. And, and our field is really small, so a, a very isolated example. But that's a possibility. You have a different population in the same field. And then you got the nuances of application, wind gusts. You know, we don't think about wind a lot when we're spraying burn down, uh, but the wind oftentimes is blowing when we're spraying burn down. So wind gusts can affect the rate of the herbicide that actually hits the target plant. And then <laughs> there's sometimes it just doesn't die. And I don't, I can't give a logical explanation for it it just it just hangs around 
newsflash, biology is complex. Oh, absolutely. And I think we don't, we glance over that sometimes because I think people get bogged down sometimes in the biology. And that, you know, and I, and I, we don't need to make the whole thing about ryegrass, but I think that's one of the ones that sticks out the most, although you drive up and down the road. And I know you've had plenty of calls about Hembit. Folks have sprayed Hembit. Hembit hadn't died. There's some pretty purple out there. There's some places where it does look nice and purple. I've got a five year old that can pick out the Hembit going about <laughs> 70 now. My kids can pick it out too. Man, Hembit is a weird plant. And that's all I can really say about it. If you spray henbit anytime before Christmas, it'll pretty much fall over dead with anything. And then by the time you get to February, it may do just that. You could pretty much spray any labeled treatment on henbit and you'll get 100% control. And then you could spray a labeled treatment on it and get 0% control and have no earthly explanation for why. I think in, in 2022, that warm period we had in November and December, I think is absolutely the cause of what we're seeing with henbit right now, which is henbit that's not dying. For those of you that hadn't had to deal with it or had a effective residual out there and kept it down, we've had quite a few complaints about henbit that hadn't died. I think it's due to that warm period in December. I don't know why. I don't know what that warm period in December did that caused what we're seeing now, other than you just got a more advanced plant at, say, February 1 when a burn-down application went out compared to a, a different year when we didn't have that warm period. So you're just spraying a larger, more advanced plant. You hear a lot of people talk about the powdery mildew that gets on hen bit. I've seen it die when it was covered in powdery mildew, I've seen it not die when it was covered in powdery mildew. So there's something to that. It's not black and white by any means. And then, when it, to me, whenever a plant enters reproductive growth, you see it more often on grasses, less so on broadleaves. But as a rule, when it, once it enters reproductive growth, Oftentimes, the effectiveness of a herbicide is an absolute crapshoot. It may die. It may not. So what are you suggesting now in a situation where somebody's got a field that's covered up in henbit? They need to retreat, reapply? So right when you walk in the door, I was having a conversation with a guy about this very situation that we're describing. I don't remember what his first burn down treatment was, but he had a significant amount of a couple of fields where the henbit didn't die, wants to plant corn. And his question was, what can I do? As big as the plants are, and as you know, to use a really technical term, leggy as they are, I, I don't know that one is will ultimately be, be better than the other. My knee-jerk reaction was to tell him to put Paraquat on it. And then, of course, his immediate comeback is, well, I have Dicamba, I don't have Paraquat. So then I think, well, I don't know that after three weeks, that one will be better than the other on the spectrum of weed control. I don't know that it, the paraquat's going to kill it better than the dicamba, and he's got the dicamba in hand, so shoot, let's try it and see. That would have been my second choice. And so on corn, the only restriction there is that you don't let the dicamba come in contact with, with seed, so basically make sure the seed fur closes. 
maybe it'll work and, and, and it may not. Anytime a plant survives a herbicide treatment, it is inherently harder to control the second time in my experience. That doesn't bode well. No, it doesn't. In that particular situation with corn, henbit, a pretty shallow-rooted plant, and so the corn seed is going to be pretty deep, and that henbit plant is almost done. So I, I don't know this, but I would suspect that the competitive impact from henbit would be less than something like ryegrass. I mean, ryegrass and corn is a, I mean, that's about worst case scenario as far as competi- losses from competition. Yeah, I mean, that, that data set you've shown for years, I think that that's one of the ones that should be revisited almost on an annual basis because that's the one that you and, and Eric both say. That, that's pretty, it's pretty telling. Yeah, it's just... Uh-huh dangerous to to plan into that type of a situation and so what tom's referring to i show a slide often during the winter time at the meetings and the point of the slide is for every dollar that we spend on herbicide to control ryegrass in a field that gets planted to corn we get 13 dollars back in corn yield and that is not in 2022 numbers that's more like 2014 numbers yeah, I was going to say, most, most of that that you had originally done those conversations or shown any of those pictures when they were building bridges out there by Harlow's. Yeah. Dr. Faulkner, Larry Faulkner, who was here for many years as our ag economist, had done a lot of that work, that type of economic analysis. And when he ran mine, he said he had never seen the return on a herbicide dollar like that before. It's a big deal, and it, it's worth doing what you need to do to, to get rid of ryegrass in a field that's going to be corn. Well, and, I, and you've mentioned corn now a couple of times, and I think that's probably on a lot of people's minds. And it's certainly been on mine buzzing up and down the road that I have been shocked in some places you hadn't seen a planter running, but there's been some bottoms of fields and some ends that have been a little too moist and a little sticky with rain coming. Somebody wanted to plant corn two weeks ago. Well, now what do they do from herbicide standpoint if everything's gone in the ditch? Depends on what the temperatures are going to do. So, <laughs> well, and, and we should preface that by we had that conversation before we started podcasting that long range forecast suggests Monday, Tuesday temperatures going to be 80. If it rains Wednesday, we're going to drop into the yeah. 60s, the end of the week. Yeah. Right. And I don't know. I'm not a meteorologist. I know it's sunny outside. It is, but the wind's blowing today. We're talking about pigweeds now. Yeah. So we, we're, we're transitioning to summer weeds. And I don't know how scientific this is, Tom, but to put it in perspective, I think you start seeing pigweeds come up when the soil temperature gets warm enough to plant cotton. Again, making a collective statement here that there's always exceptions to. Most often that's in the second half of April. Yeah, around I was going to say we're, we're a month off. The earliest I've ever seen pigweeds up in the Mississippi Delta was January 31st. That was one year, many years ago. Not uncommon at all to have some up in March some years. I mean, that's, a, that's just really common. Most often those die because we get another frost. But next week is 1st of April. And once that calendar turns to April, all bets are off. We may get another frost or we may not get another frost until November. So if the temperature stayed warm, I would expect to see them come up. Now, is 80 degrees for two days, followed by rain, followed by cooler temperatures again. Is that enough to push them up? 
I don't know. Because you got to think a pigweed's germinating and emerging from a quarter to a half inch, right? It's not you're not socking it down there two and a half inches deep with a with a corn seed. It's it's right in that very top crust. So on bare ground, is there enough radiant energy from the sun to to bring that temperature up to where it's going to germinate and emerge? Probably so, in some cases. And so that's why to answer your original question. It just really depends on what the temperatures do. Preferred treatment in this scenario that we're talking about with corn that we wished we had planted or weather would have allowed us to plant a couple weeks ago, I'm still on Paraquat. But what if it's not there? And so that's what we're going to deal with over the next three or four weeks. And I don't think that's something that we can solve this afternoon on this podcast is is all the scenarios that are going to come up when we suggest a treatment and that product is not available. You know, we've talked about that over and over again already this winter on here, but it's a continued problem. Have a plan. Have a plan based on what you have present. Have a plan based on what the long-range forecast might bring into that scenario because you're likely going to have to make a decision. Well, in some of your corn treatments, that would be your backups there, would be going ahead and, and blowing out. I use that term and not blowing out negatively, but going ahead and applying some type of specific corn treatment, whether it's Lexar, Resicor, on down the line, Corvus. There's a variety of that lock you into corn. So, you know, are, are you to that point in the spring where you're 100% committed to corn? I don't know. Maybe we're not quite there yet. That's the other thing that has to be considered. Preferred treatment would be Paraquat. Maybe the backup treatment is something like a dicamba, if we're talking about broadleaves, in order to maintain that flexibility on flexing in and out of corn. If you lose the stand of corn, going into soybeans or, or even cotton. I think those are good comments and good thoughts to be thinking about moving forward because I, I certainly think next week, depending upon what the weather does, that's going to dictate how we move forward. And I'm sure that there'll be some planters rolling in the beginning of the week, regardless of oh, what the be, middle of the week temperature and or rainfall is going to do. There'll be some this weekend, uh, I'll be, as long as we can find a dry spot to go. Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly right. So any other thoughts moving forward? I think our burn down got off to a great start. You know, we had a lot of momentum coming out of the fall. Some of our early stuff, you know, we had the warm weather in February. Did really good. Taking a few lumps over the past few weeks with the bad weather. But I think relative to some of the last few years, those years that we had really wet falls and we were doing a lot of field work, in the spring, I think we're a lot better off in 2022 than we have been in some other years in recent memory. Well, and I think everybody just needs to be prepared to be on the phone and asking some pretty specific questions about what would be good options. Should I not have option A? And while we've been sitting here, I mean, your yeah, phone's probably rung, rung three or four yeah, times, and I know has. it rang this morning too while we were talking about some things. Yep. Well, we, we appreciate it. We appreciate the information. Y'all know that, you know, call Jason if you've got any specific questions. Uh, he does that this time of the year, and that's one of those things that if he doesn't know off offhand, he'll put you in touch with somebody who does, and it's pretty rare that he's not going to know. So, And we, 
we all field those questions. So keep us in mind. Track us down. We're pretty easy to get hold of. Thanks, Tom. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. Extension.